0: Uh, Gateway, hi, oh, welcome, happy new year, happy
1: new year, happy
0: new year, yes, okay, that was lovely. We <laughs> planned this the whole time. Uh, if, if you were with us for lessons and carols, uh, because of inclement weather, uh, in this specific form, this is going to be similar. Uh, again, this is a moment where we are given the opportunity to reflect on jesus and i there's like the cliche new year's day teaching where you look back to look forward in the present moment and we're kind of doing that but what we are are doing that might feel different for you is we're still talking about christmas and that might feel odd because christmas uh you know was like this past week uh, and yet that was the beginning of the christmas season we have moved from this time of Advent that was a, a moment, a season of preparation, and the Christ event, Christmas has come, and that is giving way to Christmas as we look forward to Epiphany. But we don't want to wish away our present. Uh, we want to situate ourselves squarely here in this season of Christmas. And so I, I want to call you to worship. Again, Allie is being so kind as to let me like sing along with, which I invite you uh, to do Just as if we're gathered in person, perhaps you have um, gathered family or you're still with the extended family and you're watching this. We invite you to sing. Um, it can be kind of funny uh, or awkward to sing around your family when there's not like a chorus of people around you. That's OK. Uh, it's awkward for Allie. It's awkward for me. Awkward for Kate, who's working the slides like it's it's good. Uh, we can just embrace this together. But uh, I want to extend this call of worship to you and that we are hopeful to receive ourselves. So may we, who saying, come, let us adore him, be stirred again to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. May we not lose heart in the waning holiday buzz, but persist and resist in the upside down strength of our weakness. And may the joy that was set before him overflow here in Des Moines as it is in heaven. Amen. Amen. If if you are able at home to stand, I invite you to do so as we read through our teaching text. Uh, We stand out of honor for God and his word to remind ourselves that he's worthy to respond to. Our teaching text this uh, first Sunday of Christmas comes from the Gospel according to Matthew, Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 23, and they read like this. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said to the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled, of voices heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks Thanks be be to God.
0: time, I uh, pulled a handle on a penny slot, and I won big. You know, it's a penny slot, so it's about 200 bucks. But see, my late grandmother, she had a thing for the casino, and if she liked you, that would be the destination for your time with her. And and she would bankroll all of your plays, and you could keep the earnings, which were actually sometimes just lost, so you would keep nothing. But uh, I, I went with her only a few times the casino, but the residual memories are still quite strong. There's the cascade of sights and sounds and smells. There's the, the constant dinging, uh, the the flashing lights, kind of the stale smell of booze lingering in the air and on people's breath. And then, of course, like the wrinkly faces of Southwest retirees. And I think that this is how many of us imagine the movement from Advent into Christmas. And if that sounds odd, just stay with me, I'll unpack this. The Advent is the season where we, in this illustration, are posted up playing the penny slots with our grandma. We're just waiting for the right alignment to come and the jackpot bell to ring and what we think is that glorious moment to to come, to get the payout. Which in this silly illustration if you're tracking is Christmas itself. And in turn, the logic of Advent is then something like just wait for the payoff, which is Christmas. But the problem with that logic is our teaching text for today. It's those lines that we just read, which is more like a Christmas descent than anything like a Christmas payoff. See, if you recall, from the weeks prior in Advent and even in Lessons and Carols as we tracked through the story of jesus's entrance into the world it has been a wild ride a wild turn of events i mean there's been angelic visitations and sudden departures and awkward birthing locations and gifts from foreign magicians that we know as 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 the magi and you might think that when jesus finally comes into the world that this new family could just return to some semblance of normalcy, even though there's, you know, been the, the rumor mill, a turning back home over the legitimacy of Mary's pregnancy and all of that. But you would think there could be some return to normalcy translated into this little illustration, like they could take their winnings and just go home. But what Matthew reveals is that. Christmas is not the jackpot moment that we all think it ought to be. In fact, the Christmas story, the first Sunday of Christmas, invites us into something a little bit different. It invites us to to continue in waiting. See, there is this this moment that's ahead of us, but it's preceded by these moments. Herod has uh, threatened, really it feels threatened by the prospect of a legitimate king. And then he sends these Roman soldiers to snuff out any threat in Bethlehem. And then God breaks into the scene to reveal another way forward to escape. It's this mini apocalypse that Joseph has in his dreams. And just imagine with me that if you're Mary in this, that you have a newborn babe in tow, and you're setting out on a roughly 300-mile trek down into Egypt, most likely into this diaspora community of Alexandria. You're you're no longer with family or friends. You don't have that robust or that thick web of relationships where you can raise up this child. And then in that context, that, that place of loneliness and longing, you hear a report that those Roman soldiers who were seeking your child have slaughtered every boy under two in Bethlehem. And you know that they were looking for your kid. And then when, when you're finally able to go back to Israel, it's not safe for you to go where you want. And so you end up back in your hometown, back in that place where it, the rumor mill has been churning about your son and your family. So you could say that, in fact, these are some of the worst three years that anybody could live. Ostracization. Rumors, shame, fleeing your home, like the legitimate risk of life, of losing your child. And then just the burdens of like trying to provide physically as a mother or emotionally and relationally as a father. And then all of the strains that travel would put on top of that. See, the natural questions that arise on the first Sunday of Christmas, according to our teaching text, is something like, where is God in this? Like, why is this happening? And, and what is happening? Like this isn't the Christmas payoff that we want. These stories really challenge what Dr. Tim Mackey calls the myth of religious fulfillment. And the myth of religious fulfillment is this way of thinking about our relationship with God as a sort of jackpot. That if we come to God and we come with sincerity or faith, you might call it, it's like God meets us and He settles. All of this stuff, like our relationship with God is a panacea or a way to deal with all of our pain. And we think about Christmas like this. We, we imagine that this new thing has come and we carry kind of this Christmas spirit into a new year where we start all over. But with this text, with this, the first Sunday of Christmas, rather than pull us out of the slop, God. God does the surprising thing, and he He enters into our suffering. We actually see this with, with Joseph himself. While Joseph sleeps, he has this Christmas apocalypse. And, and don't let that word throw you. An apocalypse can seem kind of, I don't know, scary or ominous, but it's it's not that. It's far from the, like, if you were to Google apocalypse and you'd come up with movies about zombies and pandemics and killer robots... Uh, which are all like pressing in our world, which is kind of ironic, but that is not the apocalypse. Um, What the word means, according to a biblical imagination, is revealing. An apocalypse is what happens when someone is exposed to God's perspective. An apocalypse is a confrontation with the divine. It's so intense that it transforms how you see the world and live in the world. It is not the end of a thing as we imagine in our culture, but it is the beginning of a new thing right in the middle of the old. Matthew punctuates this apocalypse, this revealing with the prophetic word uh, pulled from Hosea 11. This line, out of Egypt I called my son. But when we hear Hosea's prophecy, this line that uh, Matthew punctuates this scene with, we, we see that it's God speaking through the prophet Hosea and offering this prophetic reflection on Exodus. It's about God meeting us in our suffering. This is the line where we encounter this. This is Hosea 11.1. 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. There's our line. But it goes on in verse 2. But the more that they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. But they did not realize it was I who healed them. See, therefore, Matthew, when Matthew punctuates Joseph's Christmas apocalypse with the prophet Hosea, it is an exclamation point that neither Egypt and Pharaoh nor Rome and Herod can thwart God's redeeming purposes. Now, there is there's something else that God is offering us, something that this song invites us into ourselves. So, join us if you will.
1: mm mm-hmm. As every night will have its end, we know the sun will have to rise. Our loving Lord will take our hands and wipe the tears from every eye.
0: Reading this text um, left me feeling unsettled because I I have a boy who's two years old. Just based on the size and the scope of Bethlehem, archaeologists estimate that anywhere from 25 to 50 boys were killed by Herod's decree that night. And it doesn't matter the time, it doesn't matter the place, that is a horrific evil. What is this Christmas story? But it's there, amid the sorrow, that Matthew adds another prophetic punctuation. And he does so with Jeremiah, citing from Jeremiah 31. And if you don't know much about Jeremiah, much of the book of Jeremiah is about a prophet. He's sometimes called the weeping prophet, a prophet of God warning the people whom God loves to turn away from their sin and toward God, to reimagine God's love for them to literally change their mind about how they think God is operating in the world. But tragically, they don't listen. They have their own prophets they listen to, their own people they think represent God to them. They refuse to listen. And so Jeremiah is almost like, Forced in some sense, this deep sadness to bear witness to the besiegement of the city, of the people, to their destruction, and eventually the captivity outside Jerusalem by the powers of Babylon. That those who withstood the siege, who withstood the destruction, they bring out to this place, Ramah, and in chains they're led away into captivity. That's what this poem is that Matthew cites. In Jeremiah 31, 15, we read this. This is what Yahweh says. A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning in great weeping, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And this is what the Lord says as the poem goes on. Restrain your voice from weeping. And this is not because God doesn't want us to like withstand, be strong or something. No, there is... The reality of God is that he meets us in this place. It's the point of this. So listen to this. Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They, that is your descendants, will return from the land of the enemy. So there is hope for your descendants, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. See, before the return, there is weeping. The reason that the weeping is to stop is because that hope is breaking in in the midst of it. But when, when Matthew is thinking about this moment, the deep despair, he calls to mind Jeremiah because Jeremiah is also calling to mind the deep despair that's nested in the stories of Israel. Rachel, for example, she holds this iconic place in the Hebrew imagination as like this matriarch of Israel. In Genesis 35, we meet Rachel as she's dying. So I guess we would bid her farewell, but she's dying giving birth to her son, a son that she wants to call Ben-Ani, which is the son of my anguish, but her husband can't stand that, to call this boy Ben-Ani. Instead, we know him as Benjamin, Benjamin, the son of my right hand. So just as Jeremiah depicts Rachel crying out from her tomb over Israel's loss in going into captivity, so too does Matthew. But again, and hear this resonant note, it is amid the destruction that exists another word. It's a word of hope. So we ask, where is God this first Sunday of Christmas? As, as we're resolving our minds in a new year, or trying to start things, even though we've left many things unfinished. We ask, where is God? Well, I'll tell you, God is groaning over the brokenness of the world. In the words of St. Paul. And it may seem like God is more absent than he is present when we consider the condition of our world. But there is a new story of hope. The the Christmas story, it is one that brings us to the life of Jesus. It is a life that joins us. In our suffering, it is an honest story. So may these words that we sing here be a place for you to pray, a place for you to reflect, and a place a place for you to maybe see that that God's a bit more honest with the world than we ourselves are. So join us as we sing. me He brings this section to its climax. He doesn't appeal to one prophet alone, as he has done in the previous two sections with Hosea and Jeremiah. Instead, he calls all the prophets to bear witness to Jesus. And we hear as much, picking up in verse 21, he says, So he got up, that is, Joseph. He took the child and his mother, and he went to the land of Israel. But When he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And so he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. And so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. See, Mary and Joseph, they, they don't set their heart on Nazareth. No one really did. Do you remember the story of Nathaniel when Philip comes up? He's like, dude, we found the guy. Well, that's like kind of paraphrasing. Essentially, he says, we found the Messiah. It is Jesus, son of Joseph, Nazareth. Do you remember what Nathaniel says when Philip approaches him with this news that the Messiah has come from Nazareth? He says, what good could come from Nazareth. See, Mary and Joseph, they don't set their heart on Nazareth. But as Joseph's apocalypse continues, as this revealing of God continues, it becomes clear that God has set his heart on a small town up in the north of Galilee so that Jesus could be raised as a Nazarene. See, Matthew's account problematizes Christmas as the fulfillment of our hope, as the jackpot, so to speak. Instead, Christmas reminds us that even in the most unlikely of places, a town called Nazareth, the life that you've experienced in the season or the death that you're walking through in the most unlikely and uncommon of places, hope can be found. That is the message of Christmas. Again, borrowing on the work of Dr. Tim Mackey, And this is where the beauty of Matthew's account, especially in this passage, starts to come to the fore. It might be a little nerdy, but bear with me, because Matthew is drawing on not just one prophet, but like this collection, this chorus of the prophets of Isaiah and Zechariah and Jeremiah. And Matthew reveals the promise of Jesus's obscurity. Here's what I mean. In Isaiah 11, the prophet writes about the coming hope. And we read this. This is a well-known passage. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. this is where it it gets good, folks. See, in Hebrew, the word for branch is netzar. Say that with me, if you will. Netzar. Yeah. (laughs) In Isaiah, and along with the other prophets like Zechariah, they continue to develop this, this theme and the link between God's redeeming work and the branch. Eventually, the anointed one, God's Messiah, is understood as the branch. If you're talking about the forthcoming hope breaking in to the destruction, you would talk about the branch, the Netzar. See, when the rabbis translated the, these uh, Hebrew writings of the, of the prophets and the Torah, when they, when they brought those things into the language of their day, into Greek, what, what we get is Netzar becomes Nazar. And where is Jesus going again? He's going to Nazareth. Nazareth. Do you see it? Netzar, branch, Nazareth, Nazareth. Essentially, Jesus is going to the sticks. Literally, to like stick town. The branch is going to the place of the branches, to this place, and it is God's coming hope who literally goes to the sticks, Jesus the Nazarene. This is the beauty of what Matthew is saying. And as Isaiah develops this metaphor beyond just obscurity, we find that the branch, like the shoot of Jesse, it will not be accepted by the people. The imagery there is that... um, that the place has been bowled over, that all that is left is a stump, but that life has shot forth, but that this new life, it's not received as something that can actually bear fruit. Perhaps it's just seen as an odd growth, but this is what Isaiah pulls to the fore in Isaiah 53. He says, no, 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 there's something more that's gonna come than obscurity. He says this, Surely he took up our pain. He bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Where is God this Christmas? This first Sunday of Christmas? Where is God amid the escalating conflict abroad and the escalating conflict of our homes? I mean, if your family of origin is anything like mine, it gets heated during the holidays. We ask, like, literally, where is God? And we might be able to laugh it off, but in the moment, it is a deep pain, this fissure that is broken into our world, and we wonder, where is the peace? Where is the hope? Where is God? Well, God has come into the obscurity He's come in the obscure places to redeem creation by his suffering love. This is our Jesus who despised the shame for the joy that was set before him. See, what Jesus reveals is that God's proximity is to be found among the disappointed, the grieving, the failures. It is there where we meet God. See, Christmas may be where we mark the beginning of jesus's life but what we find nested in matthew is the hope it's the hope that his his wounds are ultimately going to be our healing and so as we come to a close as we come to sing this song i would just invite you to just to ask the the spirit of the living god to draw near to the pain that you carry and maybe even now you're like "I, i I I am living, I've had the best season. God has been so near to me. Well, thank God for, for that. And allow these words to just give voice to those, those deep needs that you and I are feeling.
1: How deep the Father's love for us beyond all measure That He should give His only Son
0: Church, this, the first Sunday of Christmas, I invite you to receive this benediction. The same call that we had as our call to worship, now I extend to you as a place of sending out. May we who sang, come, let us adore him. Be stirred again to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. May we not lose heart in the waning holiday buzz, but persist and resist in the upside-down strength of our weakness. And may the joy that was set before him overflow here in us, in Des Moines, as it is in heaven. Amen. Grace and peace, church. Merry Christmas.